This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Yes, we're looking at um, Acts chapter 22, although we'll just start reading from the end of Acts 21. Um, and now Acts 22 is, continues the account of what happened on the Temple Mount and uh, Paul's attempted defense to the crowd and his treatment while in custody. Um, okay, as, as we usually do, let's pray before we get stuck in. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in so many ways, in so many unexpected ways. And Father, we pray that you would bless this time together and enable us to see wonderful things out of your word, Lord, to your glory, we pray. Amen. Yes, okay, so as we conventionally do, we're going to recap to help give us the context of last week's study. So I will read this through. Um, you can follow it on the sheets in front of you. So chapter 21 of Acts completes the accounts of Paul's third missionary journey and moves on to the events that the Holy Spirit revealed in the latter stages of that journey, specifically the imprisonment and afflictions that awaited Paul. Having had a sorrowful parting from the Ephesian elders, Paul and his traveling companions continued by ship around the coast of Asia Minor, which is southwest Turkey, past the islands of Kos and Rhodes to the port of Patara in Lycia. Here they swap to a trading ship that heads directly for the city of Tyre in Syria, which is a 400-mile journey that would have taken about five days. This is the only time in Acts that Tyre is mentioned in connection with the spread of the church, though it's very likely the gospel first came there with the believers who were scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death. The group stayed in Tyre for a week, so would have had a chance to meet with the whole church. As on previous occasions, the Spirit speaks of the difficulties that lay ahead, but this time it's recorded as an instruction not to go on to Jerusalem. At a superficial level, it would appear that the Spirit is giving Paul a different message to what is described in the previous chapter, in chapter 20, verse 22. But this earlier verse, if we distinguish what Paul received in his own spirit, i.e. the sense of being bound, from what the Holy Spirit reveals about the imprisonment and afflictions that await him, then the conflict is not so obvious. Or it could have been that the difference in presentation, there could have been that the prophets entire were adding their own advice to the warnings of the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps it was just that the Spirit was giving Paul the freedom to choose a different course that meant he didn't have to walk into a storm of opposition. The farewell from Tyre is a touching moment. Though Paul and his group had only stayed a week, they had created a bond of fellowship with a bond of friendship with the fellowship there, and not just with the men, but with the wives too, such that whole families walked with them out of the city and knelt and prayed with them on the beach. The next stop down the coast was Ptolemaeus, in other words, Acho, 
where they met the brothers, stayed overnight, and then the next day arrived at Caesarea. Caesarea and its remarkable harbour were built by Herod the Great in 23 BC, and he named it in honour of Caesar Augustus. The architecture was typically Greco-Roman, and its scale was designed to impress, which was typical of Herod the Great. It was the provincial capital of Judea, and from 6 AD it was where the Roman governors lived. The group stayed in Caesarea with Philip the Evangelist, and either on this visit, or perhaps a subsequent one, Luke would have heard and recorded Philip's stories that we read in Acts chapter 8, which happened some 24 years earlier. The prophet Agabus, who is also mentioned in Acts 11, added to the Spirit's warnings about the days ahead, and he illustrated his word using Paul's own belt. This dramatic touch, or perhaps his reputation as a prophet, prompted the local believers, as well as Paul's companions, to urge him not to continue to Jerusalem. And though affected by their pleas, Paul remained firm in his resolve to face even death for the sake of his Lord. It's possible to see parallels in a number of aspects between this journey of Paul's to Jerusalem and Jesus' last journey to the city where he knew he would die. So from Caesarea, the group set off on the 64-mile journey to Jerusalem, accompanied by some of the disciples from Caesarea. They stayed with Mneson, who had a large heart as well as a large house that could welcome a group of perhaps 12 or more. In Jerusalem, the group was well received and a meeting was arranged for the next day with James and the church elders. I imagine no one would want to miss Paul's report of his five-year mission and how the Lord had worked powerfully among the Gentiles to his glory. James, in turn, reports on the harvest among the Jews in Jerusalem, where thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands, had responded, because the, the Greek word there is myriads. However, the issue that becomes central is to reassure those believers who are zealous for the law that the rumours they've heard about Paul's teaching on circumcision were not accurate. So Paul agrees to take a vow himself and also pay the expenses of four believers who are under a Nazarite vow. This kind of vow normally lasted 30 days and on completion involved several quite costly sacrifices. These are detailed in Numbers chapter 6. In the end, the trouble arose from a different quarter. Jews from Asia, perhaps Ephesus, falsely accused Paul of defiling the temple by taking a Gentile beyond the barrier where they were forbidden on pain of death. Paul was dragged out of the temple and was in danger of his life when the Roman commander intervened. The soldiers were housed in the Antonia fortress that overlooked the Temple Mount from the northwest. This was a strategic position that enabled them to quickly intervene. Paul was bound to two soldiers and hastily removed for his own safety from the riot. He was carried up the steps to the barracks, away from the crowd who were shouting for his blood. Just for uh, added context, I, I 
said last week, this is set, we think, in about the year AD 57. It's set in the spring. Um, this is when Nero is emperor. Um, I just wanted to add a, an additional reflection upon that passage, particularly that, that indication that the Spirit gives that looked like it was sort of conflicting with the previous one, but um, I, I rather go with the view that the Holy Spirit was giving Paul an option that he could take, which was okay, but, but to avoid the consequences of, of the imprisonment and afflictions that had been warned of in the future. So um, I'm just going to hand out a, a, a quote that I've got from A.W. Tozer. Who, who's heard of A.W. Tozer? Yeah, yeah, okay. Great guy. So, uh, um, well, actually, well, I'll read it out and then you can take a copy of it if you want. So this is a quote um, from the book that he wrote called The Root of the Righteous. And it struck me years and years ago when I was a student. And um, it, Toza had a really great style of writing and he summed things up so well. And also really insightful. So um, I'll read this because it bears on th this suffering that Paul was voluntarily facing. Toza says, as long as we remain in the body, we shall be subject to a certain amount of that common suffering which we must share with all the sons of men. But there is another kind of suffering known only to the Christian. It is voluntary suffering, deliberately and knowingly incurred for the sake of Christ. Such is a luxury, a treasure of fabulous value, and it is rare as well as precious, for there are few in this decadent age who will of their own choice go down into this dark mine looking for jewels. God will not force us into this kind of suffering. He does not lay this cross upon us nor embarrass us with riches we do not want. Such riches are reserved for those who apply to serve in the legion of the expendables, who love not their lives unto the death who volunteer to suffer for Christ's sake and who follow up their application with lives that challenge the devil and invite the fury of hell. Such as these have said goodbye to the world's toys. They've accepted toil and suffering as their earthly portion. The marks of the cross are upon them and they are known in heaven and in hell. But where are they? Has, has this breed of Christian died out of the earth? Okay, you see how that picks up on the, uh, the circumstances that Paul knew that he was going to be walking into. And as I said before, Paul leads from the front. So again, following our normal convention, we're going to read our passage for today's. We're going to overlap a few verses from Acts chapter 21 and through to Acts chapter 22, verse 29. So just at, at the paragraph break there. So uh, we'll do the normal thing and read round whatever version's in front of you. Uh, and I will start. And I'm going to start reading from um, chapter 21, verse 33. Verse 33, um, just to give a few verses context 
for the passage where we're going to, which we were really going to launch on. So it says, the tribune came up, this is on the Temple Mount, and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. As Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent the soldiers had to lift him to their shoulders to protect him. And the crowd surged behind shouting, away with him, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who sometime rose to your after rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. I am a Jew, he said, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, but educated here in Jerusalem under Hamaliel, at whose feet I learned to follow the Jewish laws and customs very carefully. I became very anxious to honor God in everything I did, just as you have tried to do today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the right friend, and went to the masters to bring in chains, even those who, who were there in Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told what awaits you in the years ahead. And when I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. 
for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. One day after my return to Jerusalem, while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw a vision of God saying to me, Hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't believe you when you give them my message. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in thee. And when the blood of the mighty of Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. As they tied Saul down to lash him, Saul said to an officer standing there, Is it legal for you to work a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? When the centurion heard that, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this, his, this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay. Now we're just starting on in, in chapter 22. Um, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but this part of Acts, it's kind of the, f the last seven chapters, kind of the last quarter, is generally a lot less well known than the rest of Acts, the first three quarters. And there are obvious reasons for that. For example, uh, there's not really much about church building and pioneer missionary work in these last chapters of Acts. And the level of detail in places is more than we would expect. Um, particularly if you're, if you're reading Acts from the point of view of thinking it's an account of church history. Um, now, I may actually comment on this a bit later, but it's, um, but it's also kind of, because it doesn't get read so much, then we, you get these surprises in these chapters. For example, um, we get to learn that Paul had a nephew in Jerusalem. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, other things, we'll, we'll come across them, but... Uh, and Sorry, it was that in this chapter, did I miss that, about the nephew in Jerusalem? Um, no, no, that's, that's in, the, in a chapter later, but okay. But it's, most people have, you know, it kind of illustrates the fact that the, these um, 
these chapters are less familiar to most people in the church. And also, the, in the chapter we're going to be looking at, there's the occasion where Paul is mistaken for an Egyptian terrorist. <laughs> Which is a, hmm, or assassin, as, as our, our translations have. That's, you don't tend to hear many sermons on that one. Anyway, so, um, uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll read the verses and then comment on them. So, um, recapping from verse 33 of chapter 21. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying away with him. Now, the... Um, the translation that I'm using, the ESV, uses the word tribune ref to refer to the Roman soldier in charge and others, I think we noticed, had captain or commander. In the military sense, a tribune usually refers to someone in charge of a cohort of a thousand soldiers. And actually, we, we know the name of the guy. His name was Claudius Lysias. That comes in a later chapter because we have a copy of a letter he wrote. Uh, so he, he, he intervenes and stops Paul being beaten and had a go at finding out what was happening. But the shouting was far too great. So he took Paul out of the situation and took him up the steps that led into the barracks and then into the Antonio Fortress, which dominated the um, northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And the mob who were shouting away with him were not just asking him to be removed from the temple. They were asking for him uh, to be permanently removed from the face of the earth. I mean, we find this out later on in the passage, in verse 22. So, verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Um, I'm not understanding. There's too many E's and hymns in this. Okay. Um, Paul said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And, and said, the tribune said to Paul, do you know Greeks? Because obviously Paul was speaking Greek to him. Um, and is that the language that the Egyptians use? Um, well, yes, um, because of the spread of the Greek or Roman Empire. Um, uh, so Greek was the, we describe it as the lingua franca of the Roman Empire, particularly of the, um, the around the Mediterranean coast, and Italy, obviously. Um, to the east of the Holy Land, the lingua franca was Aramaic. Uh, and so you have that that also um, becomes a language of, that people are familiar with in Jesus' time. Um, and then, but we'll maybe get on to talk about what languages are spoken by whom and how come. Um, but yes, yeah, so rest assured that Paul could speak Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and probably knew a little bit of Latin as well. And I find it amusing when, when David Pelegi uh, mentions he, when he's asked the question, so which language did Jesus speak? He knows the question's coming from a Brit or an Australian or an American 
who think that people only speak one language. <laughs> but actually, no, it's not quite as simple as that. He probably spoke three languages and a passing familiarity with another one as well. So he would, Jesus would have, uh, okay, I, I maintain, uh, along with some theologians in this part of the world, that Jesus' mother tongue was Hebrew. Um, but obviously living in Galilee, growing up in Galilee, he would have learnt Greek because it was a very multicultural context. And one of the international highways was running through Galilee and actually not very far from Nazareth. And the other factor is that um, the jobs available were relative to Nazareth. They were four miles away, they were rebuilding the city of Sepphoris, which had been destroyed and so they were it was being rebuilt as the regional capital so that's where the money was so his he, he was a builder stroke carpenter and he would have walked the four miles there up to Sepphoris to do work and you know for working purposes he would have spoken Greek but he taught in Hebrew and there are various reasons for that in fact I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that um, there's a, been a long tradition that of, of theologians saying that the language spoken by Jesus and his disciples and in general in the Holy Land was Aramaic. Uh, but the people have, have questioned that and the factor that really put a dent in that theory is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, or 47-48. Because um, even though the, the people Oh, the theologians realised that people would speak Hebrew for reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures and maybe even writing commentaries on the scriptures. But the assumption was that they spoke Aramaic because it was the language of commerce heading in on the east side. And that a lot of Jews had come back from Babylon and were still coming back from that part of the world speaking Aramaic. But what the Dead Sea Scrolls show is that in a ratio of about 90%, in other words, nine to one, are the documents in Hebrew compared with Aramaic. So obviously they, they would have the scriptures in Hebrew and the commentaries in Hebrew, but the really important thing is that the ordinary documents, the, the scroll of the discipleship, you know, their in-house documents were written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew scholars have found this interesting thing um, okay, let's have a bit of history here. So the, the Maccabean revolt took, um, happened in 165 BC, which is when the um, kind of, some Jewish people revolted against the, um, the requirements of Antiochus IV, the uh, Seleucid emperor, who, wanted, who was, wanted to completely ban the practice of Judaism. I mean, he wasn't, people would argue, necessarily picking on Judaism for the sake of it, but he just wanted to standardize within the Roman Empire, within his, his empire, the, which um, culture and gods were worshipped. And, and so, but he did it with violence and ferocity. And people were executed for circumcising their children and, you know, praying. So that, that was the cause of the Maccabean revolt, and it was successful and increasingly successful in that the Jews became an independent country um, 
and took control from the Seleucid uh, rulers for the space of about 100 years until the Romans came on the scene in BC 63. So anyway, this is, this is an important factor because you've got the formation of a completely independent Jewish state under the Maccabees. And what the academics have found looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls is that the earlier versions, the things that date from the first centuries after 160 BC, there are copying errors. You know, they can tell when they scratched out and made mistakes and corrected them. They can tell that. But then when they get a bit older, in other words, a generation later on, these kind of copying errors and, and minor mistakes disappear. And the, the idea is that because they were then growing up as na native Hebrew speakers, so that the generation who grew up within the independent country of um, Israel, or Judea and Galilee, um, they spoke Hebrew from child and didn't make mistakes. So in many ways, um, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls was the biggest news in biblical studies for a millennium. It really was a massive impact, but it, ha it has these other uh, offshoots, these effects. So anyway, um, there's, there's this, uh, this idea that's gaining ground that Aramaic wasn't the language that Jesus taught in, um, but it was Hebrew. And another line of evidence is that all of, we, we know Jesus taught in parables primarily. In fact, it was his most common way of, of teaching and, and it has a, people have an ability to remember it and it resonates with you know, people's imagination. But the point about parables is that they were not his invention. They had been being used, were being used for maybe 200 years prior to the time of Jesus and then 200 years afterwards. And these are collated in the Mishnah. And so there's something like 450 parables that are in this early section of the Talmud and all of them are in Hebrew. None of, none of them are in Aramaic. So these, these teachings which Jesus had and other Jewish sages taught in parables, they were always done in Hebrew. So even though you'll come across um, in this passage here where Paul starts speaking and the text says Hebraeus, and it should be translated Hebrew dialect, but some translators still have Aramaic in. I mean, my, this Bible puts Aramaic in the footnote, though it's rather naughty in the fact that when, it's used, when that word, Hebrew and Greek, is in the Gospels, it's translated as Aramaic. So, slight lack of consistency in terms of this kind of Bible where they take pride in translating the same word the same way, you know, unless it's contextually dependent, but the context of that word Hebrew doesn't change from the Gospels to the letters. Anyway, so that was an aside. So um, well, that's all about um, how come Paul was multilingual. Um, uh, so yeah, Paul asked for permission to speak, you know, to address the crowd. And clearly he does so in Greek, which surprises this Roman commander. And maybe the commander was surprised because he spoke it so fluently, and which told the, which made the 
Roman commander think this guy is not a local and they're therefore maybe um, putting two and two together and getting some rather large number you know so we've got a, a near riot or an actual riot and the person who speaks Greek so maybe the person who came to mind was this Egyptian terrorist uh, so I mean it's one of one of these exchanges is kind of unexpected and the sort of thing that you would imagine would end up as a quiz question in other words which apostle was mistaken for an Egyptian assassin <laughs> you know pub quiz question um, and and the word uh, that's translated in my Bible as assassin sometimes is in the authorized version they've got murderers and the NIV calls them terrorists um, but you get the idea but really this is a translation of the Greek sicarios which is really a Latin word sicarius plural sicarii and it means dagger men now these were a splinter group of the zealots and they were cunning and ruthless and out to wreak revenge on the Romans and any of the Roman sympathizers and their weapon was one of these short daggers that they could hide in their clothes and what I'll, what I'll do is I'll read a little bit from Josephus because he describes how they behaved and what they did and their, their tactics so Josephus says this you know he was writing uh, a few decades later so he was the um, well he was writing uh, in the um, last 30 years of the first century basically he was um, a commander of the rebellion uh, forces in Galilee in AD 66 um, re and realized very quickly that they had no chance against the Roman forces so basically he um, swapped sides um, and then he volunteered his services as a historian of Jewish history to the Romans so he got himself a room overlooking the Tiber in Rome and wrote a number of actually very valuable and very interesting commentaries on Jewish culture, Jewish wars, um, Jewish history and so on. Right, so that's a bit about Josephus and this is what he writes about these people called the Sicaria. Another type of bandit sprang up in Jerusalem known as Sicarii. These men committed numerous murders in broad daylight and in the middle of the city. Their favorite trick was to mingle with the festival crowds, concealing under their garments small daggers with which they stabbed their opponents. When their victims fell, the assassins melted into the indignant crowd and through their plausibility entirely defied detection. The first to have his throat cut by them was Jonathan the high priest and after him many were murdered every day. More terrible than the crimes themselves was the fear they aroused, every man hourly expecting death, as in war. So this, this was no mean thing. And so what the Roman commander is talking about is this Egyptian guy, he was the ringleader, he was the leader of these group of assassins or dagger men. And the decisive moment in their rebellion came when they came up from the wilderness to the Mount of Olives and they were preparing to attack Jerusalem. But the governor Felix 
had you know, got wind of this and he got organized and he faced them with some heavy duty Roman infantry. And basically there was not a contest really. So most of the Sicarii were either killed or captured, but the Egyptian escaped with some of his followers. So they didn't have the body. So this is why, um, uh, you know, it's, he could have, th well, you know, this, this, amazingly violent crowd must have some reason so he comes to the idea of maybe it's this Egyptian who's been caught trying to cut someone's throat anyway so moving on verse 39 Paul replied I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city I beg you permit me to speak to the people and when the commander had given him permission Paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush he addressed them in hebrew and hebrew language saying amen okay we'll say that we'll go into that in a minute so um paul corrects the roman uh, commander but what's interesting is he doesn't say in that point that he's a roman citizen and i think that's because he he could be overheard and saying that he was a Roman citizen in that particular crowd context was probably slightly too sensitive a piece of information. So, so he just says he's a, a citizen of no mean city, meaning Tarsus. But uh, the thing that strikes me is that most people would have been really quite happy to have get away from that crowd and just disappear as fast as possible into the barracks. But Paul sees it as an opportunity. Uh, and so what it looks like is that the tribune, the commander, removes one or both of his um, shackles because um, it says that Paul's able to motion with his hand, you know, he's kind of, hey, and then kind of quieten the crowds down by kind of waving his hand in front of them. And then he switches to speaking in Hebrew. And he's clearly comfortable in both languages. And as I said, he would also be familiar with Aramaic and spoken a bit of Latin as well. So he goes on in verse uh, 1 of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defence that I may now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, and we'll go on to that in a minute, but uh, this shows that the... Um, uh, well, in, in this passage, we have the second of three occasions when Paul's testimony is recorded in Acts. The first one is in Acts chapter 9, which is kind of in the context of when it happened in the history there, when Paul was journeying to Damascus. We have this occasion here, and then it's repeated again in Acts chapter 26. So and in, sli in slightly different ways. And this um, passage here, um, Paul is deliberately picking on certain aspects of the story and highlighting them and missing other bits out. And that's clearly because he's dealing with a rather emotional crowd in front of him. So he's got to kind of choose his words fairly carefully. But the... Um, I mean, I referred to this before, that the, there are certain things about Acts which are kind of confusing. If you want to read it as 
a, just a church history. Uh, and I've mentioned this before, and I'll say it again, but I think the best explanation that accounts for various features in Acts is that it was written by Luke for this person called Theophilus, who was going to be Paul's defense counsel in his trial in Rome. Uh, now, anyone who comes up with some explanation of why the Luke wrote Acts has got to account for three big things. One is the way in which Acts ends. In other words, it ends with him in prison and it doesn't answer the question, well, what happened at his trial? You know, that would have been, an, if you were writing an account of church history, it would have been obvious to have told what the outcome was. Because um, I'm pretty sure Luke wasn't writing for a um, soap opera and to have a cliffhanger such that people will be clamoring for part three of his trilogy that tell, tell what the outcome of the trial was. No, that's not really a, a plausible way of thinking of it. Um, so that's one thing. You've got to account for how it ends. And another thing is you've got to account for, for about two thirds of Acts, there's an almost exclusive focus on Paul. And it can seem odd that Peter, having been the main man in the first few chapters for obvious reasons, then pitches up in chapter 10 with Cornelius and then has a little part in Acts 15 at the council in Jerusalem, but then he's not heard of again. And, and so what about all the other apostles? What, did they, what were they doing? You know, so there is this exclusive focus on Paul for more than half of the book of Acts. And then the, uh, the other thing you have to factor in is what I was talking about earlier was this, this last quarter of the um, book of Acts, the last seven chapters, where the kind of information you have is not what you would expect if you're wanting to read about a um, church history or mission activities. Because it's a lot, not only is it focused on Paul, but it's not too much about church work. It's about his trials and tribulations, you know, and, and the, um, the hearings he has and his imprisonments and his his journey to Rome and the shipwreck and how that ends up. Um, now, when you... So these are the three big features that have got to be explained by anyone who kind of has a reason or wants to say what the background context or motivation of Luke was. And I think this idea of that it was being written as a information and a briefing document for the Defence Council accounts for all of those three factors. One is that... Um, it obviously doesn't have the result of the trial because it was written and closed off before the trial took place. And then secondly, with the last seven chapters, have more detail than you'd expect on things that you wouldn't expect, um, like who said what in the trial. Because it is really important for someone who's defending Paul to know exactly what happened in the previous hearings, and there are two of those, one with Felix and one with Festus, and also how Paul conducts himself as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. 
you know, what sort of prisoner was he? And the answer is that he was an exemplary prisoner. Not only was he blameless in his conduct, and, um, and he's, his wisdom comes through in that terrible situation with the shipwreck, and he advises that, you know, no one should do a runner, otherwise people, you know, but we're gonna lose the ship, we're gonna lose the cargo, but no, all the lives will be saved. And that's what happened. And then he then does other things on the um, island of Malta, uh, stays there three months and, you know, wins the crowd over and, you know, heals people and spreads the gospel and, you know, all these things. And then, so really he's um, a model prisoner. Um, and not a um, rabble-rouser that, that his uh, detractors would have maintained. So I, I'm just saying that this is how um, that way of looking at it accounts for it. How does he get away with winning um, or, or spreading the gospel in Malta whilst in... Well, he, uh, it's, he, he couldn't really get that, that very far on, on Malta, you know. Uh, and but I mean, they never, they never took it against him that he was spreading the gospel. They just let him free to speak. Well, I think the Romans were kind of above that, really. I mean, basically, he was, um, he was healing people, and so what? What's not to like about that? <laughs> so they kind of just. Yes, and and he, but he went to the main man, you know, the top man on on Malta, and um, and healed him. Uh, he who had a who had a fever, or was it? He had was it dysentery or something. Anyway, Paul tells us the exact medical condition he had, and Paul healed him. Um, so anyway, that's um, a bit of an aside. Why I think that and it, that analysis of it, Acts being written as a defence document, accounts for medium-sized problems and little problems as well. You know, little quirks within the text. Um, so. But I'm not going to have an argument with people about it. It's not, not nothing to fall out about. But it, it really does help inform why the story flows in the way it does. And those people who say, well, it acts as a, an account of how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome, are kind of missing the point. Because Luke is clear that at the day of Pentecost, there were Jews and convert, converts to Judaism at Pentecost. And it's not too far of an idea to say that some of those were converted and within a few weeks the gospel had reached Rome when they travelled back there. So the gospel had reached Rome long, long before Paul got there. I mean, incidentally, it does, you know, the, the, um, the, the narrative starts in Jerusalem and finishes in Rome, but that's kind of, that's a side aspect to it and it does kind of follow that. But the. But actually, it's, that's not the prime reason. It, it can't be, because we know that the, the gospel got to Rome way before Paul arrived there. Okay, so back to our um, study that we're looking at. Um, anyway, so um, Paul gives his um, defense here, and I'm, I'm not going to, um, because we studied it a bit more yeah, back a number of months ago, in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to kind of pick on more of the differences rather than everything about the um, uh, Paul's encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. I mean, there are differences, but it's differences of emphasis between this passage and chapter 9. So, uh, yeah. Verse 3. 
Paul says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So this is, he's talking to the crowds, probably in a loud voice. Um, and so these aspects that he's bringing out are to do with you know, his, his life as a uh, Pharisee and uh, his, um, his respect for the um, traditions passed down from their fathers. And the first point he makes is that his, presumably his family came from Tarsus to Jerusalem when he was a boy so that he could be educated. And the person he was educated by Gamaliel was a highly respected teacher and leader of the Pharisees and he was one of the school of Hillel so when in the time of Jesus there were these two streams of teaching by the Pharisees the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai now Hillel was more you'd characterize as a liberal and Shammai was more you characterize as a conservative in other words a conservative interpretation of the, the Torah um, and they both had a, a, a strong following. Um, and Gamaliel was of the uh, school of Hillel, and, but highly respected, and, you know, a, a gen generation or two later. So what Paul is doing here, he's, he's emphasizing the orthodoxy of his education under Hillel. Okay, on to verse 4. And so Paul goes on to say that I persecuted this way. In other words, that's uh, quite a common way of referring to the, uh, the faith in Jesus. I uh, persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters of the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, Paul, as we know, he never tried to hide his past as a persecutor of the believers. Instead, he used it to highlight the grace of God. Um, and this is, we can find this in uh, 1 Corinthians and, well, actually, I'll, I'll read one of the passages. So it's, he mentions it in 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. And I'll, I'll read the, um, that 1 Corinthians verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 9 and Paul says for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary I worked harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me And, um, and in this passage here in verse 4 oh no, in verse 5 Paul is referencing the high priests and the whole council of elders or that's sometimes referred to as the Sanhedrin the council of elders and he knows that they will be able to recall what he was doing some 20 plus years prior to that and, but he's just showing that he recognised and operated under their authority at that time and Paul continues, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, 
About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, um, yeah, we, we know really what the story, most of those points from the story which are the same as, as in Acts chapter 9. Except the phrase Jesus of Nazareth uh, is how frequently other people referred to Jesus. Because obviously uh, Yeshua was a relatively common name, so it had to be qualified. Um, like, uh, actually, the most common name among men was Simon. So this is interesting to note that whenever you find there's a Simon mentioned in the Gospels, it always has to say which Simon you're talking about. Simon of Cyrene, Simon the Zealot, Simon Peter, Cephas. So all these Simons have to be clarified. And the same situation you get with the ladies, because Miriam, Mary was the commonest name of for a woman and therefore whenever you've got a Mary appearing in the Gospels the Gospels have to say which Mary they're talking about and you'll find it and actually it gets quite confusing the number of different Marys that there are but the scripture is clear about which which ones has been talked about so um, and I, I've seen a talk by um, uh, a theologian you know high profile evangelical theologian who analyzes this in detail and demonstrates that really these, the Gospels, unlike the detractors amongst the theologians who say that they were written centuries after by people elsewhere in, in the Roman Empire, says, no, no, no. People who write this sort of material and know which are the most popular names and know that they need to uh, discriminate them, you can't do that when you're writing from 100 years later from a different country. You just don't know. You, haven't, you can't look up the names on Google to find out which ones are the most popular. Um, and so when you read these, um, the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, you'll find they have almost no names in them, or almost no place names, apart from the obvious stuff like Jerusalem, and, and very few personal names. And sometimes it appears that the name of Jesus, they think Christ is his second name, you know, like a surname. So when you analyze it at that level of detail, it's kind of fun to see. Actually, these guys really knew they would live there. That it has all sorts of details that only someone would know who lives there. And they don't, try, they don't try to make it sound authentic. It's just what happens when you say that someone went down from Cana to, to Capernaum. How do you know you have to go down from Cana to Capernaum? Well, I live there. <laughs> You know, so those sort of details are in the Gospels. Anyway, that, that was another distraction. Um, so, yeah, talking about Jesus from Nazareth. Okay. Um, oh, the, the other interesting thought I, I love to point out in Je and Paul's encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road is, and we know Jesus says to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now we know that Paul teaches a lot about the church as the body of Christ. 
And I think it's not unreasonable to say that you can trace back his understanding of the church as the body of Christ to this occasion where Jesus says, you're hurting me by persecuting these believers. You're hurting my body. So this is, Paul would have dwelt on this understanding or this word from Jesus and realized actually there's something really profound about why he's saying this that the people that the believers on earth are in some way organically united with Jesus in glory and Jesus feels what they feel okay verse 9 now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me and I said so Paul says what shall I do Lord and the Lord said to me rise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So in this account, rather than the other ones, the, Paul makes it clear that the people traveling with him heard the voice or heard the noise, but couldn't understand it. So they saw the light and they heard a noise, but they didn't, but didn't get the words. So that was only revealed to Paul. And then in verse 10, um, Jesus replies to him, gives him instructions. And Jesus could have told Paul an awful lot more than he told him. But he tells him just what he needs to know. In other words, he's telling him what to do for the next step. Basically, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told what is appointed for you to do. So just get there and... So this account doesn't say, but it was a three-day wait. And Paul, as well as being blind, was, um, he didn't eat, which was probably quite a simple choice, but he didn't drink anything for three days, which is actually quite remarkable, to not drink for three days. So he was, so actually being blind, blinded by the light, was, I think, a gift of God. Basically helped him concentrate, helped him, you know, isolate what was going on outside and focus in and um, re remember when the, in Acts chapter 9 the Lord reveals to Ananias says you know go to Paul and behold he is praying you know as if compared with what Paul was doing then everything else was just kind of going through the motions so Paul has got a lot of thinking and praying to do and he's stewing for three days and then the Lord speaks to Ananias. Yeah. And Paul continues in this way. And he says, And one Ananias, and he emphasizes this, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. So this is a kind of shorter account of what Annas says in chapter 9. But what Paul is doing is that he highlights that he was a devout Orthodox Jew and well-respected in Damascus. So he, you know, he's, because of this crowd he's talking to, you know, he's saying that this revelation came from a devout Torah-observant Jew. And verse 14, uh, Paul continues, and he said, recounting what 
Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now again, this, the, the phrase, the God of our fathers, ensures that his hearers know that it's the one tr true God that is determining all the circumstances of, of this encounter and everything that flows from it. And Paul uses this phrase, righteous one, as a way of referring to the Messiah. And, um, and actually, uh, Peter does that as well in his... Um, accounts in the in the early chapters of Acts when, on, on the Temple Mount and Stephen uses a phrase as well but but it's a really powerful way of referring to um, the the Messiah and I, and it comes particularly in two places in Isaiah so um, let's just flick to these two verses in Isaiah so let's start up Isaiah chapter 24 Uh, verses 14 to 16. I'll read this one, this one, and somebody else turn up Isaiah 53, and that will be the second occurrence. So, first of all, Isaiah 24, verse, from verse 14. So this is a prophecy about the Lord's judgment and on the earth from the end of time. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west, Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. Um, so the righteous one is the name of the Lord's anointed in that context and being the, the attention of people from all over the world. That's that section. So has somebody got... Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. And when he sees all that is accomplished by the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. And because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant shall make many to be counted righteous before God, for he shall bear all their sins. Yeah. The more literal translation has says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be, to be accounted righteous. Yeah, so it's, um, again, it, it picks up that phrase there. Um, so th that would be an um, unmistakable phrase referring to the Messiah without using that word. And then the instruction comes from Ananias, and why are you waiting? Rise and be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, we've we said in the past in, in these Bible studies about Christian baptism, although it's physically similar to Jewish ritual immersion, I mean, they used a mikvah um, because that was, they, they were available. But it's associated with the washing away of sins, as you can see in this passage here, which goes much deeper and further than the ritual of purification in a mikvah, which by definition was always repeated. So that it only had a kind of temporary effect 
and so, so the ritual cleanliness was easily reversed. So you'd have to go through the, the mikveh the next time you headed up onto the Temple Mount. Whereas, so although the, the physical practice looks, bears a lot of resemblance with ritual immersion, it is actually has this, uh, or corresponds to a once, a once off transformation power. It's the outward form of an inner change. Okay, so um, now heading on to verse 17, Acts 22. Paul says to the crowd, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, what is not obvious from what Paul is saying is that he's just jumped three years in the story. So between verse 16 and verse 17. So when I had returned to Jerusalem, that happened three years after what was happening in Damascus. But what Paul is doing here is that he moves the action to the temple in Jerusalem, kind of for obvious reasons, because that's the big deal for his audience. So let's um, actually just clarify that situation. So I'm now going to turn on to Galatians chapter 1. Um, and show you uh, where Paul refers to, uh, uh, and where he mentions this uh, three years. So Galatians chapter 1, um, I think I'll read um, from verse 17. Um, so he, Paul is talking, Paul says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles apart from James, the Lord's brother. So there, that's, so that's what he's talking about. That's his, his first visit to Jerusalem after this Damascus Road encounter. But it, he clearly says that it happened three years later. So he had been in the, uh, what well he describes in the, in the wilderness, in the desert of Arabia for three years, maybe traveling in, in different places in, in Nabatea. Uh, because Arabia wasn't just down in what we now think of as Arabia. It stretched all the way up, up all the way to the um, east of the Holy Land. That was, and up to, up to as far as Damascus as well. So east of Damascus was called Arabia. Um, yeah, so Paul spent his time there. So, um, and, and it's also mentioned in Acts chapter 9, verse 16. Um, Uh, but what, what you notice is that the, both the Acts passage and the Galatian passage don't mention what Paul is talking about here, which is the, the vision, uh, the word that he had from the Lord, uh, um, that he, you know, he, was in, he needed to get out of Jerusalem pretty quickly because there was an awful lot of misunderstanding about him. And he needed to kind of take a low profile. So actually the disciples packed him off down to Caesarea, then back, back all the way to Tarsus. 
his hometown. Okay, so Paul continues in verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Um, yeah, Paul's recounting stuff that is quite familiar with us. But I want, just want to pick up on that um, phrase, Stephen, your witness. The word for witness in Greek is martis, which primarily means a witness in legal or historical sense. In other words, someone who saw something and recounting it because they witnessed it. But here, the word resonates with its later meaning, which is where our word martyr comes from. And it's going to basically taken directly from the Greek. And although the word Martis is used many times in the New Testament, about 20 or 30 times, and mainly it's to be understood as witness. Then there are a few, there's a couple of occasions in the book of Revelation where it clearly is translated as martyr because that's really what it means. So it, it, it came to mean that a martyr was someone who was giving their witness in the most extreme circumstances. So that's where the, the word martyr comes from. I mean, you, and some, the, the old um, King James Version translates this word witness as martyr in this context here. So Stephen, your martyr, is what the authorised version says. And verse 21, and so this uh, word from the Lord continues, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. There you are, there's the, there's the genuine meaning what away from him means. Yes? What, what was Paul doing for three years in the desert okay. of Arabia? What else was there in the desert of Arabia? Well, there were, there were communities, so I think he may well have travelled south, even down to Petra, because that was the central city of the Nabataeans. So, so he, I mean, we get the impression is that he was spending time with the Lord and being taught the Lord, and then maybe, you know, witnessing um, and learning about that in a kind of low-profile way with the people that he met. So, so I don't think he became a hermit, no. but I think he would have, yeah. But this, this um, three years is um, perhaps answering my query that he made himself so famous in Jerusalem because of his martyrdom of the early church. Mm -hmm. And then he disappeared from the scene and he came back and I would have expected him to receive adulation and glory for what he'd done. But in those three years, perhaps it was past history, and these these mm -hmm. new people who were, you know, making a fuss about about him and uh, trying to get him arrested, maybe didn't know who he was, had never heard the stories, or had forgotten. Um, well, I think his reputation as being a persecutor of the church was probably high profile. I think only a minority of people in Damascus would have come across his 
bold witnessing that it talks about in Acts chapter 9, you know, like the next day he was in the synagogue, actually proving that Jesus was the Christ. Just, you know, transformation on the inside. His, his thinking was completely turned around. Um, but, but not that many people would have traveled from Damascus to have and, and recounted that. So I think the impact that he personally had over Stephen's death and, um, you know, bad news travels fast. So I think this aspect of his reputation would have stayed in people's memory rather than this weird stuff that he's actually done a kind of complete reversal and now he's preaching, you know. And so people will think, well, how does that work? How, you know, that doesn't happen. So there will be some people who needed convincing that Paul really had, um, was a true believer in Jesus, not just someone trying to spin a story because he hadn't yet returned to Jerusalem. On, so on that first time, so, and then he received this vision from the Lord um, to you know, stay, he did, it was just a two week visit, 15 days, and they realized that the temperature was rising, so they needed to pack him off. And again, so he, 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 he learns his teaching and hones his skills both in Tarsus and then in Antioch. So he, he goes back to his hometown in Tarsus, and then it's Barnabas that comes and picks him up and says, look, we, we really need someone like you, know, like you, who knows a thing or two about the Torah and the prophets. Come over to Antioch and give us a hand. Something like that. Good. Barnabas was a great guy for, you know, including people. You know. So does that help fill in kind of some of the background there? Is there much written about the three years? Where do you read up the, what he did in those three years? Where is that information? No, well, there's not very much information. No, it's pretty much, much silent. Available. So we don't know, but he was in, in Arabia. And, yes. and he talks about having received revelations. So but we don't know any of But we don't know anything. It's just, it's just guesswork. Okay. Yeah, to be fair. But you, we can use imagination. You think, Paul is not the sort of person to sit in a cave for three years, not talking to anybody. No, he's going to be out talking to them. I mean, you know, they couldn't hold him down. The, you know, the next day in Damascus, after, after Ananias had laid hands on him, he was there, you know, persuading people the reverse. So you, got, you can't keep the man down. So he would have gone out, and I think, amongst the um, Nabataeans in that part of the world and spoken of things. But... Maybe in a kind of contained way that, you know, he could make mistakes and it didn't really matter, you know, that kind of thing. Or he could straighten or find the best ways of explaining things or, you know, just hone his teaching skills in a um, rather more secluded environment. Anyway, that, that would be my imagination on the situation. Okay, where do we get up to? Um, okay, verse 23, and they were... And the, the narrative continues. They were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So what we have is a really disorderly crowd on one hand, and Paul being clear and controlled and apparently 
perfectly reasonable, although some slightly wacky visions, you know. But so the, the, the Roman commander says, okay, we've got these bloodthirsty crowd and someone who's just not that much of a strange guy, who's educated and a good public speaker. So there's something you're not telling me here. There's, I'm missing some information here. And being a military man, how you find out missing information is by flogging. So that was his plan. Saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him. Yeah. But, so, verse 25. So when they stretched him out for... Uh, the whips, you know, tied him down. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? This is, this is, a, real, this is a bombshell, basically. Paul's revelation that he was a Roman citizen. There were Roman laws um, they're called the Portian and Julian laws that clearly forbade flogging of a Roman citizen who had the right of appeal. It was everybody, everybody in authority knew that you should not do that. Now, we know that Paul had played this card previously. And then, do you know what, what circumstances was when this issue came up previously in his missionary travels? Anyone? Can you think of it? Okay. This happened in Philippi, where he and Silas were beaten up and thrown into prison. Uh, so let's let's just read that because that, because it is it, that the same thing is happening. So turn back in Acts to Acts chapter sixteen. So, um, So the situation is that, yeah, um, Paul, and, Paul and Silas have been um, beaten. Um, where was that? That's, that's earlier on in the chapter. Uh, verse 23. Uh, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them and they threw them into prison, ordered the jailer to keep them safely. So, yeah, jumping forward to verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. What did they actually say to prove they were Roman citizens? Wasn't there a okay. did they carry a Well, it's possible. They could say, I'm a Roman citizen. Yes, now, um, but if you, if you said you're a Roman citizen and it was not true, it was a capital offence. Now they, believed, they were believed. That's yeah, they were believed. That's true. Now they did have a thing which is basically a passport, like it's a, a wood, two bits of wood folded in the middle, which had 
information on to say that, that the statement that they are a Roman citizen. So they uh, carry So one assumes that they were carrying it. But it may be that it was such a commonplace thing that it, people don't bother to mention it. Um, yeah, so, and that, that, you know, also, you would ask that question in the passage we're reading. Well, how come the Roman commander was, um, you know, suddenly didn't ask for evidence, or, you know, yeah. but it, or at least was struck by the, the truth of it. I mean, maybe it's the sort of thing that people didn't lie about because it's checkable. You can check it. Particularly if the person who is now in custody, there are means of finding out whether someone is a Roman citizen because there are records of it. But there is also this thing that people would have carried around, just uh, two bits of wood engraved with that information. So yeah, so this is, um, and I think quite rightly that Paul plays his card, you know, that a Roman citizen, you know, um, not to just uh, take it lying down or tied up. And verse 27, so the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So not only should you not whip them, you shouldn't bind them without uh, a proper hearing or without, a, you know, you shouldn't imprison them without a hearing. Um, now, what's interesting about this verse here is that Roman citizenship wasn't for sale. So what's this guy talking about? So this is Claudius Lysias. This is the name of the Roman uh, tribune. tribune. It, saying, what he's saying is that he actually bribed a Roman official in order to be put forward as a candidate for citizenship. Um, and it's, we have historical information about this. In fact, during the reign of Emperor Claudius, which is AD 41 to 54, I think, um, there was a lot of this kind of corruption going on. And in the early years of his reign, people paid a lot of money in order to become a um, Roman citizen. But as the years went by, uh, so many people joined in that the price went down and you could, you could get it for almost nothing. Um, the protection was still Yes, but it was still a valuable thing to have. But, you know, too, too many people were wanting to, you know, the, the money to, and so the, the um, supply and demand rules applied. Now notice, this is interesting, that this Roman tribune calls himself Claudius Lysias. And he calls himself Claudius, which is a clue that he became a citizen during the reign of Emperor Claudius. So did people maybe take yeah, they, they, they didn't maybe, they did, it guaranteed, that the people who became Roman citizens during the, the reign of that emperor took that emperor's name as their nomen, their Roman name. So Claudius Lysias is his name. Yeah, so, um, yeah, any, sorry, we'll, we'll reach the last verse that we were planning to touch on. So any, any questions, anything you want to...
Any observations? never shied away from you know opportunities you know there's that previous occasion in Ephesus when there was a near riot in the theater and he wanted to get up in the front and start preaching and they held him back so wisdom prevailed in that situation that said no Paul this this is not going to work this is just stay away from trying to convert this crowd <laughs> but you know basically he, he, he was up for it whenever and, and partly there's a sense of indignation that he was falsely accused, that he wanted to right this wrong, that he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the holy place from the temple, which was wrong. And he, he wanted to try and sort this thing out. So, yeah, colorful character. Never a dull moment with our friend Paul. I think that's where we'll end. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.